We're in Acts chapter 9. And again, other than Jesus, other than Jesus, there's been nobody in human history that has impacted the church more than the man we're going to look at today. Nobody. Not Peter. Not John. But the Apostle Paul not only wrote more than any of the others combined, but he influenced Luke. When Luke wrote the Acts of the Apostles, a lot of that information was taken from being with Paul, being discipled by Paul. When he wrote the Gospel of Luke, he wrote it as a guy who Paul had mentored and discipled. And so again, looking at the New Testament, I mean, the book of Romans alone is probably the most studied New Testament book of any other book. Even more than the Gospels, probably. And Paul wrote that. But Paul wasn't always Paul. Before he was Paul, he was Saul. And the day is the story of how God came into his life and radically changed him in a moment. It was, it was a miraculous transformation. Most of us don't have those kind of stories. Our, our meeting of Jesus may have been over a time of being exposed to Him. It was much more gradual. But for Saul, it was, it was a flash. The Shekinah glory of God appeared to him. And it changed and rocked his world. Just to give a little backdrop, remember the whole theme of the book of Acts or is really it's a letter written from Luke to Theophilus kind of unfolding how the church, the, the believers, the followers of Jesus actually continued His mission. It says at the beginning what Jesus began. They, this is the story of the continuation of that. And in Acts 1.8, he says, you will be my witnesses, Jesus does to his disciples in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And we are seeing that progress here as the church grows. Acts chapter 2 is when the Holy Spirit came. Peter preached a message. 3,000 people, 3,000 people brought into the kingdom in a moment. It was unbelievable what God did that day. And it, it led to another 5,000 people and the, the apostles were doing what Jesus did. They were healing people. They were teaching people about Messiah, about Isaiah 53, which the Jewish people really didn't even know what that meant in terms of a suffering servant. But they did because Jesus had explained it to them. And so the church was growing. Acts chapter 6, seven men were, were chosen to serve as deacons, or not really deacons, but servants to go serve food so the apostles could focus on preaching and teaching. Philip was one of those. Stephen was one of those. Stephen was martyred. We saw his, his ministry, short-lived as it was, but very impactful. And it played a part, most likely, in the guy we're going to look at today. Because he was there when Stephen was being stoned. In fact, he gave his approval. He was probably one of the witnesses against it. And then we see the church scattered as Saul, we are introduced to in chapter 7, goes and starts going house to house. And the word was ravaging the church. That word was like 
you use for a wild beast tearing up its, its, its prey. And, and the, the apostles went back to Jerusalem, but the believers scattered. And Luke picks up one story, tells about Philip. He could have told about a lot of people, but he chose Philip and he told about Samaria because Samaria was significant. Why? Because it was part of God's strategy and plan. There was Jerusalem, then there was Samaria, Judean Samaria. And Samaria was kind of a link almost. It was half-breed Jews. It was Jews who had intermarried with Assyria. It was people that were so hated by the Jewish people that nobody would have believed Messiah would have cared about them. And so he sent Philip up there. And as Philip went up there and shared the gospel, we see the, a false convert in Simon the magician. And then Peter and John go up to authenticate that these are true believers. There were a lot of true believers in Samaria. And then we see a true believer in the Ethiopian eunuch. We see a true conversion when... God tells Philip to go to a desert road to Gaza. And that's where we were at last week. And we, we, we looked at last week that when he went up there, he sees this guy, and the Ethiopian eunuch is seeking God, but he, he, he's, he's not seeking Jesus that he knows of. He's been to the temple, but we don't know that he even got to go in the temple. In fact, Jewish law prohibited him from going in the temple because he was a eunuch. And De Deuteronomy 23.1 says you can't go in. So he made a thousand mile journey just to get over there. To go to Jerusalem to keep the feast because that's what good Jews did. And he was either a Jew by being a proselyte or he was a Hellenistic Jew. And what does God do? Is He's leaving town reading Isaiah 53 about Messiah and he doesn't even understand what he's reading. God says, I'm going to bring a guy into his life. And it was a divine appointment. He took Philip right into him, shared the gospel. He got baptized. And then he went on his way. Philip goes to Caesarea. Actually, he goes to Azotus, and he ends up in Caesarea. But that's where we are right now. That's what was going on. The church was expanding. And then chapter 9 starts off with, but... And I think that's important to understand that anytime you see a but, something's about to be contrasted with what was going on. And so before we read the text, I want to I highlight that this is a true conversion in the, that Saul. This is a guy who God's going to choose to be an apostle. But he is Saul at this point. And, and, and there's four things I see about true conversions in this text. One, that God, if it's a true conversion, God's calling you to a divine invitation, first of all. A divine invitation. It's not, you know, when I met with a boss on, on Saturday, when he came to my house thinking he was just coming to do something for AT&T, it was a divine invitation when we started talking about the gospel. God was inviting him, not me, Jesus was inviting him and these other two guys through me. That's divine. And we're going to look at that in, in Saul's life. But also, God calls us to a divine mercy. What, what do I mean by that? Do you realize, guys, that you can't even appropriate the faith to believe unless it's a gift from God? That, now, that is mind-blowing to me. I don't understand it. I don't... 
even propose to understand it. It's, it's, it's like me, or if, if like me being a five-year-old trying to understand calculus, you can talk to them all day long about the numbers. They will never grasp it in their brain. And in the same way, how can the world can we grasp that our faith is actually a gift from God? For by grace are you saved through faith. Grace precedes faith. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And so, but God calls us to a divine mercy that He extends to us and we yield to that mercy. Third, He calls us to a divine relationship. Do you realize that, that the, the conversion of Saul, the conversion of anybody, is not a religious activity? It, it's not a religious check in the box. It is a divine relationship with the creator of the universe. When you go to the ocean, like I live out at the beach, I walk out on the beach and I look at the ocean and I see the vast ocean. And, and we haven't even plumbed the depths of the ocean. We don't even know all the things that are in the bottom of the ocean. There's sea life down there we don't even know about. The, the universe, we think we know because Hubble goes out there and we think we can... Say, yeah, we know this and that. We don't know all the things that are out there. The God who created all that wants a relationship with us. A relationship of dependence where we depend on Him and we interact with Him. And so if we just think it's a religious activity, we just pray a prayer, you know, walk an aisle, get baptized, do this, and that's it. We've missed it. It's a divine relationship. And that's what he wants us to understand. That, and we see that in Saul right away. Nobody has to tell Saul, this is what you do. In fact, he just does it like a baby breathing air. You don't have to tell a baby to breathe. His lungs feel the pressure. He has to inhale. It's the same thing with us spiritually. And finally, he calls us to a divine family. We're not just in relationship with God. We're in relationship to His people. We are to be a people. It's not an isolated thing. You cannot be in God's family and be isolated by yourself and expect to be obedient to God's command. He says, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. Discipleship can't happen apart from relationship with other people. And he says, go make disciples. You're either a disciple maker or you're being discipled by a disciple maker. One or the other. Or you're being disobedient. Because that's what we're here for. We are to be a channel of blessings to the world around us. Not a reservoir. We're not just supposed to, That was Israel's problem. They just thought it was all about them. They were a reservoir. And God says, no, you're supposed to be a channel. And so that's what we see in Paul or Saul. He's not Paul yet, so I, I, it's hard because you know him as Paul, you quote him as Paul all the time, but he's not Paul yet. He's still Saul. And so as we read this text, keep those four things in mind because we're going to come back and we're going to kind of look at each one of those. It's fascinating. Again, Acts 22 where Paul's talking to a bunch of Jewish leaders in Acts 26 where he's talking to Herod. He tells the same story that we read about here. He tells his story. God, in His sovereign uh, 
you know, design wanted us to know Paul's story so intimately that he tells it three times and he includes details in different accounts for us to know it. So let's read this one in Acts 9 and then we're going to we'll go through and, and look at each one of these thoughts. Starting in Acts 9 verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias? And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise, go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he's done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me, so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. May God bless his word. Saul. Saul was Jewish. He was chosen by God. He was a religious leader of the Pharisees. He was a Roman citizen. He was educated by the Greek philosophies. Think about that. There was probably nobody that had those qualifications in Israel at that time. Think about what I just said. He was Jewish. He was a Roman citizen. He was Greek educated. And he was a Pharisee. That's amazing. Very unique. But when you think about his Christian credentials, he was a missionary. He was a pastor teacher, a church planner, a theologian. An evangelist. He was, I mean, he was one unique individual that God 
had said, this is my instrument I'm going to use to reach the Greeks. Do you know that if you're His, the same purpose that He chose Saul for, He chose you for. It's just where He chooses to manifest you is based upon your experience, your gifts, your background, and those things in your life. Every one of us. If He brings you into the kingdom, if He brings you into His family, it is to be a channel. And He wants to use you. We are all chosen instruments if we're His. Plain and simple. We don't always think that way. But this guy was unbelievable. Other than Jesus, I don't know anybody that was more influential on the church. And Saul paid a heavy price for having all those credentials. He had to go through a lot. Five times he was whipped, three times beaten with rods, stoned, shipwrecked, hungry, all these things that happened. And you know what he wrote about those things? He said, these are light and momentary afflictions. We get so bent out of shape about some things, have no idea what true sacrifice really is a lot of times, like he, he did. He went through the ringer. But before he went through the ringer, God had to get a hold of his heart. Because, see, he was on Saul's path. He was doing what Saul thought was right for God. It wasn't that he didn't care about God. He just was serving God the way he wanted to serve Him and the way he thought. And he completely missed Jesus. You can't do that. You don't get to choose what God says. You don't get to choose how you serve Him. We have a big problem with that in this country. We think we can serve God the way we want, and that's exactly what Saul was doing. But you know what? God gave him a divine invitation. And I find it interesting. And, and, you know, I know there's people probably in here that don't believe in God's sovereignty and salvation. Or they struggle with it. I, I can understand the struggle. I struggle with it sometimes too. I don't understand it. But how much was Saul seeking Jesus when Jesus found Saul? He was, he was completely opposed to him. Completely opposed to him. He was not only opposed to him, he was killing everyone that said they liked him. Everybody that was following him. It says, he was still breathing, verse 1. You know what that word breathing there means in the Greek? It's not breathing out like exhaling, it's inhaling. He's inhaling murder and threats. That means he's seething with hatred for people of the way. And I find that interesting too. The way, you know, people, when you talk about the way, it was a derogatory term back then. Just like Christian. You know, Christian was not a, a favorable term. They called them Christians. They were, that means little Christ. It was derogatory. We use it in a positive, in a positive way. I'm a Christian. Or I'm a follower of the way. Back then, when they said those terms, they were derogatory. Immediately, when you read that, oh, as believers today, we look back from the context of John 14, and I said that on Saturday to Abbas. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's why they said that. It was exclusive. 
It wasn't this open-ended thing that, well, anybody can just come in. He's going to love everybody, which there's a lot of Christian universalism today. But it's exclusive. There may be lots of ways to God, but they all have to go through the doorway of Jesus. That's what Peter said. That's what Jesus Himself said. But Paul led the movement, guys, to stamp out Christ. He wanted to get rid of Jesus. And that's what he was doing. He had gone to the high priest. He was going over there. And it says as he went on his way, he realized he was making a mistake and he started seeking Jesus and suddenly a light from heaven shone. Is that what it says? That's not what happened. He was going... 180 out from Jesus. And God said, not so fast. You're mine. And a light shone. And him and everybody with him went to the ground. Just like the people in the garden when Jesus said, I am he. They went to the ground. Because he tells about that over in Acts 26. Saul, Saul. Saul, Saul. You know, every time in Scripture, well, I I shouldn't say every time. I'll say in Luke's writings. I'll narrow it down. When Luke writes in the Gospels or even here in Acts and he goes, if if your name's said twice, it's not a good thing, right? Martha, Martha. Simon, Simon. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. So when Saul, Saul, he's about to get exhorted or rebuked. And that's what he does. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I find that really interesting. This divine invitation includes this exhortation. Why are you persecuting me? Now, who is he persecuting, guys? Jesus had been resurrected. Yeah. So what does that tell you about Jesus' followers if they're true followers of Jesus? Who's inside of them? So when you hurt Jesus' followers, you hurt Jesus. When you persecute Jesus' followers, you persecute Jesus. That's pretty clear. In Acts 26, in fact, flip over there real quick. Let's read that. Acts 26 when he's talking to Herod or Agrippa. Acts 26 starting in verse 9. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus. Wait a minute. He was opposing Jesus, yet Jesus chose him. You see why I I don't understand that personally I struggle to know why people think that God's not sovereign in salvation. He was opposing Jesus. He had no thoughts of going toward Jesus. And it says He opposed Him. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in the synagogues. I tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them, even to foreign cities. This is not a guy seeking God. Because Jesus said over in John... If they don't know me, they don't know the Father. So, so Saul was doing what he thought was right, but it, he doesn't know God. He doesn't know Jesus. 
In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, everybody fell to the ground. I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Do you guys know what that means? You know what a goad is? It's a sharp instrument used to prick or prod oxen or cattle or whatever animal you want to move. And when you kick against it, guess what? It hurts. It hurts. So what he's saying is, um, you're inflicting pain on yourself to go against me, Saul. And where was he headed? To Damascus. Damascus was about 130 miles north of Jerusalem. Think about this for a second. Why is he going to Damascus? To arrest you. Huh? To persecute and arrest. Well, yeah, yeah. He had gotten permission to go up there to arrest people. Damascus was a pretty big city. It was a pretty uh, key city on the trade routes. It was one of the most beautiful cities in Western Asia. For you guys who went to Israel with me, do you remember when we went to Scythopolis, Beit Shane? You remember the big open uh, ruins there? Uh, it, it was the biggest ruins we went to. It had all the, the Roman ruins down there. That was called Scythopolis. Scythopolis, uh, that area right there, was not far from uh, Amrit. Amrit is where the third temple Herod built to Caesar Augustus was. And it was on the way, you could see that temple from the Damascus Road. The road that went down that Paul would have been on. A lot of people think it wasn't far after that where he had the Damascus experience. It's about a six-day journey from Jerusalem to Damascus. Now think about that. He's going there to arrest people. First of all, he's not going by himself, right? There's people with him. He's not going to arrest these Christians without helpers. Do you know what it would have been like to be bound and marched for six days by foot, 130 miles? This guy, he had a fury to go and persecute God's people. But what did God do? And by the way, Damascus had been around a long time. This was a pretty important city. It was back in before Abraham's time. If you go back to Genesis, it's mentioned back in Genesis. Naaman, you remember Naaman, the guy who was healed by a leprosy? He was from Damascus. So this city was important. It, was, it would have been well known. So Saul obviously thought he needed to go stamp out Christianity there. Otherwise, it, there was a large Jewish contingent in that city. And he needed to go make sure they didn't get corrupted by this way. So that's why he was going. And on the way, he got a divine invitation. Well, what happened? Well... We see a divine mercy. Verse 5. Go back to uh, chapter 9. In verse 5. And he said, Who are you, Lord? That tells you right there, he doesn't recognize Jesus. He doesn't know who he is. Many are going to say, Lord, Lord. And he's going to say, Depart. For I never knew you. Those people recognized Jesus, but they never surrendered to him. Saul didn't even know who he was. He knew about him. He had heard about him. 
But when Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He didn't even know who he was. And he said, I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. You see, the next thing that happens is pretty important because it says in verse 8, Saul rose from the ground and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. He was blind. So they led him by hand and brought him into Damascus. Now think about what was going on. Why was he going to Damascus? He was going there to arrest people. He was the leader. He was now blind. And Jesus just told him, why are you persecuting me? Saul, you're kicking against the goads. You're fighting the wrong battle. He could have just turned tail and ran back to Jerusalem. But he did the first thing that anybody does in a true act of conversion or salvation. You know what he did? He surrendered. He surrendered. He yielded. He submitted. He went and did what Jesus told him to do. I would too if you did that. <laughs> Whack. Yeah, but you know, the problem in modern evangelism is we take out the surrender part because it's legalistic. We don't talk about the lordship because it's legalistic. The first thing Paul did, Saul, was surrender. He did what God told him to do. He told him to go to this city that he was going to stamp out Christians. He just told him to go and wait and you'll be told what to do. And he did it. He did it. He surrendered. That is a divine mercy. Listen to what Paul wrote in Romans 3. He says, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. I want to do a track one day and I want to put this in it. You will never find a track with this kind of language in it. We sugarcoat it, make it, you know, we make it all about the people. But he's starting with God and saying, we have offended a holy God. We don't seek God. He said, their feet are swift to shed blood in their paths are ruin and misery in the way of peace they've not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Paul wrote that to the Romans. In first. Corinthians 16.22, he says, if you don't know Jesus, you're accursed. You're accursed. You see, the problem with people, and the problem with, you know what the problem with Saul was? It wasn't that he murdered Christians. It wasn't that he beat Christians. It wasn't that he was putting them in jail. The problem with Saul was he rejected Jesus. People don't go to hell because... They commit adultery. They don't go to hell because they lie. They don't go to hell because they're greedy, because they murder. They go to hell because they reject Jesus. That is what Saul did. He was rejecting Jesus up until this point, and then he received a divine mercy because he yielded. He surrendered. He surrendered. And then we see... 
a divine relationship. Verse 9. And for three days he was without sight, and he neither ate nor drank. He didn't eat, he didn't drink for three days. What was he doing? He was fasting, but a Jew did not fast without praying. See, fasting has become a fad today in the church in a lot of places where they just say, hey, we're going to do a fast next week because we want this new building, or we're going to fast because we want this or that. Fasting was always attached to prayer. You didn't fast and not pray. The reason he didn't eat is because he was praying. If you go down to verse 11, when he's telling Ananias what to do, he says, for behold, he is praying. He'd been praying for three days. Why? Because like a newborn baby taking in air, he's interacting with God through Jesus for the first time. This is real relationship happening now. This isn't just a religious activity. He's communing with the Creator through Jesus as an intermediary. He had not experienced that before. And he talks about that. If you go to 1 Timothy 1, in 1 Timothy 1, when he's talking to young Timothy about the Gospel, down in verse 12, He says, I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to His service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. To the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever. What he's saying is, God brought me into His family to bless others with my story of His redemption in my life. We are a channel. Paul was a channel. If you go back, guys, and you look throughout the Old Testament Scripture, why did God tell His people over and over and over, keep the commandments? Solomon, if you want a guy on the throne... You keep the commandments. You honor my word. And over and over, he tells all the time his people, keep the commandments. Why did he tell them to keep the commandments? I know, so they would walk in obedience, but why? So they won't sin against So they would reflect to the world who God was. Yes! So they would reflect to the world who God was. These were God's statutes. These were God's laws. These were His commandments. So if we keep those, then we validate that we're His. Do you see why it's so important for us to be obedient? It's not to earn God's favor, but it's to validate to the world that we're really His. To try to tell people about God and then live like you're of the world destroys your credibility as His messenger. 
And, and so Paul goes, I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. But he came into my life and he changed me. Was there a change in Saul? You betcha. You betcha. He says in Philippians 3, 7, listen, you got to understand, we don't think about this a lot of times. More than likely, Saul was around while Jesus was being interrogated. More than likely, he was on the outskirts. I don't know if he was in Jerusalem. There's nothing that says he was there. But Gamaliel certainly was the guy that mentored him. And this happened not too terribly long after he was resurrected and after the church was growing. And why, why would they take a nobody, somebody unknown to them, an outsider, and say, you're going to lead the effort to persecute the church? Saul was leading the effort. He was the leading the charge to persecute the way. And, and this is what he says over in Philippians 3. Whatever gain I had, I count it loss. You see, his goal was to be the best Pharisee he could be. And the way he did that, the way he was moving up that social influence ladder there was to go persecute Christians for the religious leaders. And he says those things don't matter in Philippians. The only things that matters is what? To know Christ. To know His suffering. Because he was in a divine relationship at that point. He realized, listen, you can't write these are light and momentary afflictions if you're not connected to the one true living God. You can't write that when you've been beaten five times and, and three times with rods. You can't. That's, that, that's impossible for you to put that kind of stuff out unless you are connected to the one true living God. He had a divine relationship. And then we see with Ananias, God brought Paul into the divine family. He connected him with a brother. And Ananias was afraid, rightly so. And it, it struck me that Ananias already knew what Paul had come to do. Word traveled. He knew he was coming to put people in jail. And he said, Lord, I've heard evil things. For us, we read the story and we kind of gloss over this. But I want you to imagine for a second that you're living back in the 1940s. And all of a sudden, word gets to you that Adolf Hitler has converted to Christ. And God wants you to go to his house where he's at. And he wants you to go minister to him. Or let's say it's, it's 10 years ago. And you hear Osama bin Laden has trusted Christ. And God says, okay, Amos, I want you to go to Afghanistan and you're going to go represent me to Osama bin Laden. You're like, whoa, wait a minute. This guy, don't, he's going to kill me. That's what he thought. But here's how cool God is. God gave him a vision of... of Saul, and he gave Saul a vision of him. Because God can, if you think God doesn't know your thoughts and can't influence your thoughts, you're crazy. He can. I shared on the radio last week. I was in Russia on a mission trip. I was coming back. On the flight back, I had a dream about a guy who was in the Marine Corps with me. I had a dream about this guy. And I, 
There's only been one adult male in my entire life that I wanted to just beat the tar out of, and this guy was him. <laughs> we almost got into a fist fight in the Philippines. I just, me and him were like this. I've never almost fought another adult in my life, but this guy almost did. About broke my hand on an electrical box over there. He made me so mad one day. I just was, I, we did not get along. I was a professing believer. He wasn't, he, could, he didn't care. So I'm over in Russia, coming back on this flight, and I have a dream about this guy, that, that I meet him, and I go up to him and I say, I'm really sorry for the way I treated you in the Marine Corps. And God just, it was like he was revealing to me through that dream that I, I needed to call this guy and ask him you know, to forgive me for what, the way I responded. I did not act very well toward him, very loving. Well, the plane is supposed to land in Atlanta to come back, and I catch a flight from Atlanta to Jack's. We divert to Memphis. I go to Memphis. I'm walking from my plane. I'm walking to the uh, concourse, down the concourse to my flight that's going to take me to Atlanta to then come to Jacksonville. Guess who walks by me? Wow. That guy. Wow. That guy. And I see him, and I kind of walk by him. I'm going, okay, that's bizarre. That's just weird. <laughs> and the Spirit prompted me, you, you can't ignore what happened. So I turned around, and I said, hey. And I called his name out. He turned around. And he, and he recognized me, and he called me by my call sign. And, and we came over, and we started talking. I said, listen, i, I got to tell you about something that just happened. It's so bizarre. I was on a plane from Russia. I had a dream about you that, that I would meet you, and I would tell you I was sorry. And I'm really sorry because that's not who I am. The way I treated you was not who I was supposed to be. And he goes, it's okay, and he blew it off. And I said, well, listen, I, I just want you to know that I am a Jesus follower, and I want you to know him. And I don't know if you do know him, and he, and he didn't want anything to do with it. But it didn't matter. It wasn't about him. It was about what God was doing in my heart that day. And, and he wanted him to hear that it was important. But I'm sure he thought about the whole dream thing. I mean, that's crazy. So God can influence our thoughts. And he did with Ananias. And he did with Saul. And, and so Ananias goes up to him. And guess what? Do you guys realize that Saul had not yet received the Holy Spirit? Saul hadn't even said he was going to follow Jesus yet. He just started following. Jesus said, go do this. So he did it. This was not about just a profession. There was a change that took place on the inside of Saul's heart. And he was baptized. And what's striking to me is this was probably the biggest enemy of the church at that time. Peter and John didn't go to Damascus to authenticate it. Surely word traveled. I mean, Barnabas had to step in and actually intercede for, say, he's really changed. He's not just pretending. But God chose when to authenticate. He chose to send Peter and John to Samaria, but not here for whatever reason. God's in charge of all this stuff. And so we see this divine family. God says, you've got uh, Ananias here and you've got other disciples in Damascus and that's where he stayed. And he stayed there and 
more than likely they were teaching him about Isaiah 53 and other passages in the Old Testament, helping him grow in his understanding until God says, okay, I'm going to let you down through a basket and get you out of here because people are going to try to kill you. And we're going to look at that later. But we look at these, these really these, this, these things that happen in conversion, an invitation, a divine mercy from God even to respond, and a really a divine relationship is what it's all about anyway, and to be part of a divine family that's a channel of blessings. And you remember what I shared a couple of weeks ago when we looked at Simon the Magician? Let's, let's look at the marks of true conversion. Was, was Saul humble here? He was humbled. He wasn't at first, but he was humbled, right? He was humbled enough to where he went and did what God told him to do. Was he dependent? Yes, he couldn't see anywhere. He couldn't do anything. He had to be dependent. Did he have a changed heart? Yeah, what did he go to Damascus to do? But what did he end up doing in Damascus? Praying. Praying and preaching, yeah. He preached, but he prayed first. And by the way, if you think that this was his only encounter with Jesus, he saw Stephen, heard Stephen's message. I'm sure other people that he had persecuted, he had heard. They, you don't think they didn't try to share the gospel with him? Surely they did. Well, like you said, he very well may have actually seen Jesus and heard Jesus speak. Yeah. It's a possibility. Well, and I want to point out one last thing. Remember the last thing about the, the marks of a true convert, a humility, dependence, a changed heart, and the last thing was seeking God, not His gifts? I want to take your attention real quick to verse down to verse 19 of Acts 9, and then we're, we'll quit. Maybe, maybe it's 18 or, 18 or 19, let me see. Um, oh, yes, 18. No, uh, no, sorry. It's uh, 16. Sorry, 16. 16. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. That's not a prosperity gospel there. You ain't following Jesus there to get... I mean, I will show him... Imagine if that was added to your gospel presentation when people shared with you. Oh, you're going to have to suffer a lot, by the way, if you follow this path. That's true conversion. You're not seeking God for what He's going to do for you. You're seeking God because you know, like Peter, there's no other place to go for life but, and peace. But that is, that, in essence, what you want. Is that life what God has to give you? You see that. I mean, at least I do. I think about that when I read all this much. That's what I want. That's what God gives us. So, I mean, you just have a different focus on what it is you want and what it is you want to seek. It's not a new car or a big house or promotion. It's the eternal life that God gives we us. We don't, yeah, we, true, convert, true converts don't seek God for the blessing He gives. Right. They I seek God for the relationship and the, and the peace with our Creator. The connection to the Creator. Those other things may come, they may not come. You may be blessed. Paul says, I'm content with a little or a lot because he didn't seek him for those things. Right. And I, I'm just making the point that when he started out, he was told he was going to suffer a lot. 
That's not popular in evangelism. Uh, Ronnie, will you close our time in prayer? If you want to ask questions or comments afterwards, fine. I know guys got to come, but uh, got to leave. But thank you. Go ahead, Ronnie, close our time. Thank you, Father God.